Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for today's Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. This podcast is hosted by the ASHP section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners, and will provide an update on a hot topic in ambulatory care pharmacy practice, specifically as it relates to pain management. My name is Melanie Smith, and I'm the director for the ASHP section of Ambulatory Care Practitioners. With me today is Michelle Matthews, professor and vice chair of pharmacy practice at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and an advanced practice pharmacist in pain management at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Let's get started by talking about today's topic, buprenorphine for pain. I'm partially here for it, and you should be too. Thank you so much, Melanie, and for to you and to ASHP for having me today um, to be able to talk about not only one of my favorite topics, which is pain management, but also one of my favorite drugs, which is buprenorphine. Um, so I wanted to start off with just um, providing some background information about why it's important to make sure that we're thinking about all of our medication options for pain management. And, and I think the first piece of this is thinking about the fact that we're at the intersection of two substantial public health challenges. Um, we're trying to reduce suffering from pain, but we're also trying to reduce harms associated with high-risk analgesics like opioids. Um, and coupled with that, we're dealing with collateral damage associated with guidelines and legislation that have significantly limited uh, the role of opioids uh, for patients that need them in particular. So we're trying to find a middle ground when we know that the root cause of the opioid overdose epidemic is complex and multifactorial. So pain management and pain management education is a really important risk mitigation strategy. So I'm happy to have a chance to talk about uh, the potential role of this uh, medication. The typical approach to pain management involves um, many different options. And Medications are just part of the picture. So we have restorative therapies, um, things like uh, physical therapy, occupational health. We have interventional procedures. Those would be different types of injections that we can uh, use as well. Uh, Well-known complementary and alternative health um, regimens would include acupuncture and yoga. And importantly, we have behavioral health approaches, including addressing pain coping skills, which can be really important for patients with chronic pain. And medications are often integrated as part of that plan. And I think it's important to just mention uh, where opioids fit in. So opioids can be effective for patients that have failed other traditional alternatives, whether those are non-opioid medications that are commonly prescribed for chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, That would include antidepressants, anticonvulsants, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, So typically when patients have failed that those typical uh, approaches to pain management, then we consider opioids after we've done a comprehensive risk assessment. And I think the the goal for today is to really just talk about where buprenorphine fits in among all the other opioids. So um, if we talk about the opioids as a class, um, you know, we recognize that opioids vary based on different characteristics. They vary based on their activity at receptors, uh, their pharmacokinetic profile, how they're administered, their potency, as well as their adverse effects. And I think it's important to mention that specific to buprenorphine compared to other opioids, it has a unique mechanism of action that's considered to be multimodal. It's considered to work as a partial agonist at the mu opioid receptor, where it has very high affinity, limited intrinsic activity, and slow dissociation. 
So we feel that by having that activity where you're getting about 50% stimulation of that receptor, that you're still getting pretty good analgesia from that, but not necessarily the same level of adverse events. Um, And some of that is attributed to the fact that it it is an antagonist at the delta and kappa receptors, uh, where it has high affinity for both of those receptors. In addition to its opioid activity, it can also act as a weak inhibitor of serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake, which can be really helpful with activating the descending uh, modulatory pathways that contribute to pain processing. And it can also act as a voltage-gated sodium channel blocker, which is a mechanism similar to the reason why we use anticonvulsants for chronic pain. So you can see that based on this different activity, you end up having potent, potent analgesia, a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, a reduced likelihood of opioid adverse events, um, and that could also potentially translate into reducing the likelihood of developing opioid tolerance and hyperalgesia, which are often complications of chronic opioid use. There have been studies that have looked at um, the ceiling effect of buprenorphine. I hear a lot in practice that with regard to ceiling, uh, the ceiling effect with regard to respiratory depression is an advantage of using buprenorphine, but there's thought that that ceiling effect also happens with analgesia, and that's not actually the case. They've done studies in healthy volunteers that have found that there is a separation in terms of the impact that buprenorphine can have on pain tolerance when buprenorphine is administered at 0.2 milligrams, and then that dose is doubled. So you can actually see um, an improvement in the pain response, whereas that same effect in terms of a dose of, two point, of 0.2 milligrams compared to 0.4 milligrams does not have that much of a change in how it affects ventilation. So again, further verifying that there is a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, but not specific to the effect that it can have on pain relief as we increase the dose. There are multiple formulations available for buprenorphine. There is a parenteral injection that is indicated for acute pain. There are also two FDA-approved formulations for chronic pain. One is a buccal film that can be utilized even in opioid-tolerant patients, and then also a transdermal patch um, that's applied once uh, to the skin once a week. Um, and that does give us some flexibility with treatment options for patients that have both acute pain or patients that have chronic pain. You may be familiar with a formulation of buprenorphine that is commonly used for opioid use disorder. That would be Uh, medications that are generics or Suboxone itself. And that that is not indicated, that formulation is not indicated for pain management. It is indicated for opioid use disorder, but it can be used off-label for chronic pain. And one thing I want to note about the buprenorphine products is that it has a long duration, buprenorphine itself as a molecule has a long duration of action. Um, So that's advantageous for chronic pain, But we do have to be mindful of when we're using it, um, especially for the non-FDA-approved formulations such as Suboxone, to make sure that we're using it appropriately. So for example, Suboxone is indicated to be dosed once daily for opioid use disorder. But to take advantage of its duration of effect for pain management, we typically dose it two or three, sometimes four times a day to ensure that that patient's um, pain is covered based on the duration of analgesia that we see with buprenorphine. There are many studies that have evaluated buprenorphine for acute pain that demonstrate, uh, similar to what I had mentioned before, that it can be effective in comparison to other opioids um, with minimal effect on respiration. 
And then I think from a chronic pain standpoint, we don't have as much data, but we do have um, thoughts that there are potential benefits, which would include uh, potential increase in efficacy in patients with neuropathy, especially because of its multimodal mechanism of action, um, that it may have a better safety profile in vulnerable populations, specifically older adults and patients that may have um, organ impairment. And then also, again, patients where we have to think about the risk of respiratory depression, this may be, um, we may have preference for buprenorphine in patients that may have a higher risk. Another common issue that comes up is as we utilize buprenorphine more frequently for um, opioid use disorder and potentially even for chronic pain, we do have to think about um, the, set, the management of acute pain in patients that are on buprenorphine maintenance. And there have been studies that have looked at uh, opioid receptor occupancy in patients on buprenorphine maintenance. And what we've found is that um, as the dose of buprenorphine increases, the receptor occupancy increases as well. So for example, if a patient is maintained on two milligrams of buprenorphine per day, their opioid receptors that are available, um, or excuse me, are occupied are about 41%, whereas patients that are maintained on higher doses of about 32 milligrams there's up to 98% of receptors occupied. So for patients that are on between 2 and 16 milligrams per day can still have pretty good efficacy uh, of opioid analgesia um, and can be used safely without significant additive or synergistic effects on the respiratory uh, drive. Um, And that is why there are many hospital protocols that have looked at maintaining patients on buprenorphine when they come in for surgical procedures, um, the only thing that would be done would be lowering the buprenorphine dose, again, to free up some of those opioid receptors and then treating the pain with an opioid uh, throughout the perioperative period. And then one last note about buprenorphine and potential to switching patients to buprenorphine, especially on the inpatient side, uh, there's a concept of buprenorphine microdosing. So let's say we have a patient that's maintained Um, on an opioid regimen, and we're either thinking about a method to get them to discharge or we're looking for ways to taper them off of the regimen that they're on, there are some buprenorphine protocols using the sublingual formulation that could potentially allow for continuing of the current opioid regimen and then slowly starting buprenorphine each day, starting at a dose of 0.5 milligrams once daily, and then eventually increasing over about a week to about 12 milligrams once daily. And on that day, that's when the current opioid regimen can actually be discontinued. And this may allow for reducing the risk of withdrawal in a patient that is immediately switched over to buprenorphine and may provide a better level of comfort and satisfaction for the patient. A couple of things to note with regard to buprenorphine in terms of um, adverse events and just some precautions. Um, Buprenorphine still does have the same opioid-specific adverse events that we have to worry about beyond respiratory depression. So there is a risk of CNS depression, GI dysfunction, also uh, risk of uh, misuse, abuse, and addiction, although the rates are not as typically high with uh, buprenorphine, but this can still be seen. And then specific to buprenorphine, we do have application site reactions, especially for products that are um, absorbed buccally, sublingually, or transdermally. And then buprenorphine is metabolized through the CYP3A4. Um, It is a CYP3A4 substrate, so we do have to be careful with patients that are on inhibitors or inducers of that CYP isoenzyme. There are reports of QTC prolongation with buprenorphine. However, in practice, we do not see this very often. It is just something to be mindful of. 
I believe the studies that have looked at QTC prolongation with the use of buprenorphine um, have only found about a three millisecond change in the QT interval. So the clinical significance of that is, is probably minimal. And there are reports of buprenorphine causing hepatitis. So it's recommended that liver function tests are uh, evaluated regularly. One question that does come up for patients that are on buprenorphine is uh, whether or not they should be provided with access to naloxone. So for patients that are um, being treated with buprenorphine for opioid use disorder, uh, we use naloxone um, as one of our harm reduction tools. So it's often co-prescribed to that patient population. And I would certainly do the same for patients that are prescribed buprenorphine for pain as well. Just be mindful of the pharmacokinetics. So buprenorphine has slow receptor association dissociation kinetics and naloxone has fast elimination kinetics. So in the rare event that buprenorphine does cause an overdose, um, the modeling um, of the pharmacokinetics and dynamics of that drug suggests that a patient may require a, a continuous infusion of naloxone to maintain reversal. So with that, um, I hope I've been able to make a case um, for your consideration of where buprenorphine fits into pain management. Um, it's a unique opioid that's effective beyond its role as, an um, as a medication for opioid use disorder. But we still do have to be mindful of patient factors as well as drug-specific dynamics and kinetics before we move forward with um, the use of this medication for pain. Thank you so much for having me. That was great. Thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today to discuss buprenorphine for pain. I'm partially here for it, and you should be too. Join us here every Thursday where we will talk with ASHP content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe rate or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.